This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In October, we've celebrated the long-standing association between the garden, the natural and botanical worlds, and the visual arts. Each week, we've heard from a variety of artists whose hearts and hands are tuned to the natural world through their art. They've shared with us their botanical journeys, their processes, and their purpose. The renowned British gardener and writer Vita Sackville-West stated that no room is complete without flowers. This week, we end our four-part series on botanically-inspired artistry when we visit with Minneapolis-based artist Anne Wood of Woodlucker Studios. Her work features three-dimensional botanical paper art, which is to say, painstakingly handcrafted flowers, fruits, vegetables, and insects formed from paper and paint. For the finale of the episode, in the second half of the program, we revisit an earlier conversation with Vietnamese-born, New York-based landscape photographer and writer Nok Min No. Her book, In Bloom, Creating and Living with Flowers, beautifully portrays the imaginative and surprising ways in which different artists and thinkers around the world weave their love of flowers into their everyday lives. First, Anne Wood, who joins us today from her home in Minneapolis. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Thank you for having me on today. So I would love to start with you giving listeners a visual description of your current work in the arts as they relate to the plant botanical garden world, Anne. Well, I build three-dimensional botanical objects, and that could be flowers, leaves, vegetables, roots, even soil, all out of paper and wire. Um, Right now, I have a 130-piece wall that is around 20 feet by 10 feet tall that's up at my studio, and it even includes, includes all the natural life that grows here in Minnesota and in uh, insects and butterflies that are almost like fanciful jewels that add to the wall. I make everything out of mixed media materials, which means that I search around for the right material that I would need to create a luster, a texture, or a color. I dissect live plants and to help understand the sculptural qualities and help me be able to see how to make them in three dimensions. Uh, many of the plants I grow in my garden or I purchase at garden centers or at wholesale florists in my area. I have so many questions based on just that initial description. Talk to me a little bit about your own garden, Mm -hmm. how big it is, how much time you spend there. Well, I kind of spend, break up my day in in two factors. One is my life at home, which revolves around my garden and my house, and the other is my creative life at my studio. I live in a small house built in 1940 in a neighborhood near Como Park in St. Paul, Minnesota. Como Park is one of the larger parks in St. Paul that has a beautiful conservatory. And I really enjoy like the fact that we live in a place that really honors and respects nature. I live in the middle of the block and our 
our primary garden is in the backyard and it's it's a circular as a circular path of grass with the garden surrounding it it's very orderly and private and it's odd the way it's planted it tends to look the best looking out the window which is what my husband loves to do he likes to stand and kind of look out <laughs> at it and enjoy it in the winter because we live in a climate where it hits about October and things are over and it gets really cold. So in May, when the garden time uh, revs up again, everybody's ready to go. So mm -hmm. I work on that here and then I go to my studio and it's in the Northrop King building over in Minneapolis, north of downtown. And uh, this building is quite large, and it's where North of King Seed actually packaged all their seed from their mail order uh. and their business, f you know, from probably starting in the teens all the way up to, I believe, the 1970s. Right now, it houses around 200 studios and small businesses. And it's kind of interesting, as you enter the building, there's photographs of women in their 1940s dresses with little tweezers and devices filling the paper packages that the seeds used to come into. About seven years ago, I rented an old welding studio that was just grease from the floor up to the ceiling. And I kind of made it into a space that was really uh, flower-filled. I have like a pink velvet couch and a velvet chair and warm woods and then three dining room tables that are all set uh, almost like what you would need to make a sewing studio and I have my different stations for making all my work around those tables. It's my botanical home, shall we say. Mm -hmm. mm. Take us back a little bit further to how you became a person that would want to cultivate a garden or become interested in botanical arts. Well, I grew up on a farm in Iowa, and my dad raised corn and livestock. I came from a really small place, like total rural environment. There were 18 people in my graduating class, and <laughs> uh, yeah, so very, very small. And Weather and plants were the center of our family's life. Uh, when there was hail or rain or wind, we'd get in the car and we'd drive around the mile square and see how everybody's fields fared with what was going on weather-wise. And my grandmother was, you know, a person who lived through the Depression, and she would take my brother and I each winter, and we'd sit down with the seed catalog, figure out what we wanted to plant, and then Grandma would order the seeds, and then we would plant them in the spring with her. And so a lot of my life, my young life, was around watching and learning how things grew. Um, that and my work in 4-H where we would, you know, show animals, uh, show food, uh, draw, paint, cook, sew. So it was a combination of outdoors in the summer and creating 4-H projects. And I had a really unusual mom, too. She um, let me paint the whole, my whole bedroom. By the time I was about 12, she paint the whole bedroom white. And then we ordered from the Sears catalog this beautiful floral bedspread. And then she let me paint animals and flowers and things in nature all over the walls. Every weekend I would go up there and paint 
you know, just a little special thing that was very nature-related. So I, I really got permission as a child to be super creative. It's one thing to be put at the kitchen table with some glue and scissors mm-hmm. and a completely different thing to be told, this wall is all yours. And it was a whole room. It was the ceiling, too. I had birds flying on the ceiling. So it was, I would lay on my bed and look around, and it would be like, I, I made all this. And it was super empowering as a child yeah. who grew up on a farm. And there was no, I had never been to a museum up in, in a large city until I was probably 17 or 18 years old. The idea that I was going to go on and be a photographer and an artist was so out of context to where I grew up, that did really set a foundation to give me the feeling that my creativity was worth being valued enough to move towards the life that I dreamed of. Yeah. So describe that movement, Anne. How did you get from being the mistress of your bedroom universe of of plant and animal kingdom to to doing what you do now. Give us give us that history. Well, after graduating from high school, I went to a technical school in Iowa where I studied photography and became most interested in building the sets for um, like product photography. And my parents were worried about me moving to Minneapolis because it was like too big of a town, too big of a step. So I still had that dream. And then I did move up to Minneapolis and went to the Minneapolis College of Art and Design and eventually met my husband there, who was also an artist, and received a BFA from that school. And from about 1990 to 2010, Dean and I had a wholesale business that we showed at the national craft shows and wholesale to galleries all over the nation and museum shops for about 20 years. And then I had um, my dad was in the last years of his life. It became really clear to me, even in his last days, we went outside and he was up here in Wisconsin and there was a sumac plant blooming, you know, how they get that really deep red. And he was like, mm-hmm. that's the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And we were in that point where every, every you know, moment was cherished and noticed. And something told me, take notice of what he's saying. He's giving you some sort of cue. So after mm. my dad passed, it, it was just like I was in such a transition moment in my life that... What I had done before did not seem pertinent anymore. I'm 57. I really wanted the rest of my creative life to connect more with people, to really count, and to be seen. I had joined Instagram and probably six months prior to that, and I was showing my husband and I's work, and this gave me permission. This transition gave me permission to really open up and try something extremely new. Um, Mm. so I started with making a singular feather and I thought, oh, oh, why would I make a feather? Why do I want to do this? And then (laughs) then I started sharing it and people were like, well, that's really interesting. You have such a knack with working with materials. I just glued two pieces of paper together, uh, with a piece of wire on the inside and started drawing on it and then use little fine embroidery scissors to cut the lines and kind of fray it out a little bit so it looked like a real feather. So that was kind of the whole beginning to this whole story. 
so you, you know you've you've been very hands-on to this point you you've been a photographer you had this wholesale work you'd painted on walls was there something that directed you towards this three-dimensional um, kind of crafting of of an object from nature what 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 is can you talk about that at all well, I, I think it was the intense desire to connect outward and to honor mm. nature and to give it the power that it has in our lives. Um, you know, thinking about we all change, we all decay, we all grow, we all bloom. You know, and I had just witnessed that in the most heartfelt way with my parents and a lot of the seniors that I spent time with for 10 years and got to know and mm. and I, I wanted to do something that I felt like my parents could really relate to too there yeah. was that part yeah. of it also and and you know from the feathers it turned to butterflies that I started to build the wire structure like when you look at a butterfly wing it almost has a stained glass kind of structure so I, I carved bodies for these butterflies, gave them wings, and then I started thinking about, like, what would it be like if I could build these things totally in the round, you know, like a rose, so that they wouldn't be flat, that would come upward. And I was using and looking at photographs and vintage botanical prints. I did that for about six months. And I could do them somewhat, but there wasn't enough information on those. So I, I was thinking, I really want to make a cherry tomato. So I've always just bounced all over from <laughs> flowers to food. And I'm like, well, why don't I just go to the greenhouse and get a cherry tomato? And then it was like, oh, now I can really see what these things look like. So, yeah. so then that really helped me understand the essence of the blooms, what the centers of the of the uh, flowers really look like much more specific than any photograph and then I'd start cutting them apart and really seeing how the folds like how the forms the flat forms turned into three dimensions so it helped me to better understand them sculpturally and what I love about your work is not only the realistic scale and rendering of these beautiful natural objects, there, there is this very um, lovely tension between the artistry and the realism of them. And the in your working towards understanding the botanical technicalities of each of these items, you're then putting it back together into this artistic three-dimensional piece allows us to understand the technicalities of the botanical, which of course is the whole history of botanical art, is, is not only someone learning about those technicalities in this incredibly detailed way without a microscope. I mean, you know, we might use them now, but originally they just got as close as they could get and then started using microscopes. And it's this beautiful two-way learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, often um, I will take the thing that I'm working at and photograph it right next to, held up right next to the real plant. And that, mm. that helps me see too. That allows me to see things that my eyes don't perceive as well. But when mm. I see it in comparison, mm. it is that play back and forth. So I'm, I'm looking for 
uh, accurate reality, but I still want them to have a sense of personality, if that <laughs> makes any sense. Oh, yeah, yeah. They are individuals. And, and as I've like studied more plants, there are a lot of variations between even the, a, a bloom on this, in the leaves on a singular plant, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's one of that difference in the similarities is one of the things that holds and captures our imaginations as gardeners and plant lovers over time in space and history forever. It's one mm-hmm. of the, the, the ties, right, between us as people and these beautiful planet mates of plants and insects. Mm-hmm. So you've been doing this now, that very first feather. About what, what year was that? I think it was around, I was just looking at that on my Instagram account. I think it was around two and a half years ago. Wow. So it's, it's been a transition of daily, of, I post about three times a week on Instagram, and I really share exactly what I'm doing. Uh, not necessarily how to do it, but what I'm creating, where I'm creating, some of my yard, some of my house. But it's fun to be able to go back and, and trace your ability to get better at something. And Instagram's really given me a record. It's allowed me to really kind of write my own visual magazine that documents my creativity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What are your hopes with this? What are you, what, like, describe what, where you're going with the wall and describe maybe some of the scope for listeners who might not have seen it of what is there and the different sizes and, yeah. Well, I've, like I said, I've always been a person that has a, a dream of what it is that I wanted to do. So my, I had a, once I figured out that the wall was something, I was making frame things. And um, my, my audience in, encouraged me based on my photographs that maybe the glass was a barrier. Mm-hmm. So why don't you just try hanging it up on the wall? Because you're doing that in your photographs. And and so I put small wires on the backs of all my plants and just hung them on nails. And they are spread out almost like what you would see on a medieval tapestry, where they don't overlap and there's some space in between, but there's also a lot of variety. They're all, they're all different sizes and different scales of, um, you know, like an orange is a small thing next to a hollyhock, which, you know, is a tall, slender thing. And... With this wall, I've had one specific singular dream, and this is it. I see myself walking on a terrazzo floor in a museum, and with that sound of your heels or your shoes clicking on the floor, and I come up to a super clean, sparse area, and there's my wall. And it has like 300 of these objects. It's double in size, and that's the singular goal that I'm working towards. Uh, right now. It's a vision that I had, and I've always followed that. Uh, That's what got me uh, out of Iowa on the farm. I thought I wanted to live in the city. I wanted to meet someone that I could create a life with, and it would be this life that's centered around making art. And this fall, I'm going, I have a writer lined up, and we're going to start uh, submitting proposals with the hopes of this thing getting shown in that manner. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In this final episode in our series on art inspired by the botanical world, we're speaking with Anne Wood of Woodlucker Studios in Minneapolis, St. Paul, where she creates three-dimensional botanical paper art grappling with the intricacy of the natural world. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. As I speak to you, it is October 25th, which means just 12 short days until our midterm elections here in the United States. One of the things I feel strongly about, and I speak about repeatedly with gardeners, is how every gardening action we take and every gardening dollar we spend is a vote. Anne Wood is a perfect example of this. In her childhood, in her bedroom, when her mother and father voted through their action and confidence to allow this child to express her incredible creativity and to cultivate her incredible relationship with the natural world around her. These kinds of actions are quite literally votes for what we believe in and value in this world. In this time, in my life, and in my place, I know how easy it is to have my everyday actions not actually align with my stated values on planes, in cars, in the grocery store checkout line. But just like gardening, checking in on our own alignment is a practice. So go ahead and practice. Fall out of alignment and then strive to get back in alignment. I'll be traveling the week of November 5th, and so I researched and completed and mailed my ballot yesterday. I will miss getting my I Voted sticker from my local library on Tuesday, November 6th, but I will know that I voted. To garden in any capacity, large or small, is a privilege and a choice. And to vote is as well. As nature-loving gardeners in this world, I think we can agree we need to make both of these privileges count for more than just ourselves in this world. And now, back to our conversation with Anne Wood and her creativity through her sculptural mixed-media artistry of the botanical, which casts a vote every day for the importance of creativity, curiosity, and following your dream. Anne, I love this vision. I am a visitor in this museum, and I walk down Mm -hmm. that hallway, and I hear my own feet on that floor, and I Mm -hmm. enter Mm -hmm. this beautiful sort of sacred space in the way that museums can be and I think should be. What what are you hoping that I feel or I think or I experience when I am, you know, interacting energetically with this wall of these mm-hmm. beautiful natural objects all presented together? Well, I would love the viewer to pause, take a look at a flower, remember when they picked up a feather and commented it and shared that experience with somebody else. I I hope my work captures the temporary quality of nature. It's captured that moment when that um, anemone is blooming, it's a bud, it's it's losing its leaves, and it's becoming a seed pot. That it will, I'm not really here to totally duplicate Mm -hmm. what nature does, but I want to interpret nature's splendor 
in a way that makes you go, are these real? Mm. Are th this person has really looked and really tended their observation to the point to, to bring life to something that's just paper and wire. Mm. Um, so so I, I want people to feel connected and, and to feel inspiration to explore their own creativity. You know, and the, the history of this kind of work goes back, I, I don't know how long, but the, the earliest person that I am familiar with would be the artist Mary Delaney, who at the age of 72 started doing just this, which I think is, yeah, just a beautiful context to be, to be part of. Right, and it's so it's so wild that you brought that up in your questions because I'm a big audiobook mm. listener and podcast too. But my local neighborhood library, I'd, you know, I'd been listening to the books there about ten years, and I really had kind of went through everything that was of interest to me. So I went to a different library, and I didn't know about Mary Delaney, and I, I came across her book, and I started listening to it. It just like blew my mind. <laughs> like she could do this. I mean, she was in the 1700s and was a gardener, an artist that was best known for her incredible botanical paper cut cutting. And um, she was widowed in her 70s, and she began decoupaging and painting botanically accurate. Um, I guess you would call them collages out of tissue that she hand painted. And in her lifetime, she made around 100 pieces that were built from age 71 to 88 right. when she lost her, her eyesight. Mm. So, I mean, right there, that gives me a lot of encouragement. I'm only, I'm only 56, 57. Right. <laughs> Being able to start something completely different um, was, you know, it was another influential um, uh, passage that gave me courage to to think yeah I can do mm -hmm. this I can do this she's a great example of of someone that that really stepped out and did something in incredible and it's very valued work even today mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I think she's credited with really sort of starting this as an art form in some sort of official capacity uh, which I think is I think is fascinating I think you've articulated this pretty well, but I'm going to ask the question in case there's some aspect to this kind of prismatic experience that um, that we haven't touched on. What are your greatest joys in the crafting of each one and then maybe as you complete it and you add it to your wall? I would say like it would be de developing a new technique so I could do a plant that I didn't think I could do. Mm. Um, this spring, I looked at the bleeding heart, and I thought, oh, there is no way I'm going to be able to make those little heart-shaped <laughs> with... And they got, like, a little puff to them. You know, they're not flat. Uh -huh. And then a couple weeks ago, I figured it out. So I took a small bead and put it inside of a pillow and made a little miniature pillow that went in between the rounding of the heart shapes to give it that the form that the bleeding heart bloom actually has. So it's that continual experimenting and discovering something that will help me um, 
make it feel more interesting. Like I discovered wax last year and I made a slice of a watermelon. So the outside of the watermelon is real waxy. So I rubbed wax, layers and layers of wax in between paint to create that skin on a watermelon. And then used a, um, a gloss glaze on the inside so it had the wetness and the dewiness of when you slice a piece of watermelon. Um, so that's that's a really that's something that I'm always thinking about, and I love it when I hear in my comments on Instagram or someone comes to see my work that they just can't they thought it was real. Mm. Like there's that there's that line of when something is real and then it fools the eye, but then it isn't real. So there's a lot of like questioning going back and forth in the mind of what 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 makes something real mm. that's that's very interesting and uh, part of the joy too is like making the arrangements with the pieces like actually fill it, actually building the wall and seeing the interplay that just as in gardening you're making an interplay between color and texture and that's the same thing I'm doing with building this wall and making my photographs so they're you know, to try to make something that's really tasty and juicy in a visual yeah. way. And it must give you an even greater sense of in, incredulousness for the intricacy and design and engineering of our natural world. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that it's nature is inspiring to I think everyone Mm. and I think that in doing the work that I'm doing it has been so heightened that I'm always looking I've noticed things that I would have never noticed before Um, nuances in the weather and how plants respond to weather and you know things that um, because I'm always looking for what am I going to build next you just never know what gifts the garden is going to bring us, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> Thank you very much for being a guest on the program. I so enjoy following your work, and I can't wait to get the announcement about which museum the display is going to be exhibited in first. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for your time and, and chatting with me. I really enjoyed it. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In this fourth and final episode in our four-part Arttober series, focused on the many artists inspired by the botanical, we've just heard from Ann Wood of Woodlucker Studios in Minnesota, where she painstakingly crafts sculptural mixed-media art based on living elements of the natural world. As a finale to this month-long series, we now revisit a favorite conversation from the Cultivating Place archive when we speak with Vietnamese-born, New York-based artist and photographer Nok Min No. She's speaking with us about her book, In Bloom, Creating and Living with Flowers, a celebration of artists and their botanically-inspired creations. We'll be right back. Hey, it's me. Here's one of the funniest things that happens to me on a fairly regular basis. Someone will come up to me and say, hey, I just love your podcast. I love it. And then we'll chat for a bit. 
and it will come up that they might not actually be completely up to date on the podcast right now, which makes them look really embarrassed and uncomfortable, as though there were some rules as to how we listen in this world. So let me let you off this hook right now. I don't know a program or podcast listener who does not go through cycles with who and what they listen to. You can't not do that, I think. It would be like only having macaroni and cheese for every meal. No, no, no. Enjoy the many different voices and perspectives in this world. I have a rotating queue of about six different podcasts I fully enjoy and I take turns catching up on. Not always every single episode, but a good number. I love Anna Sale and Death, Sex, and Money. I love Jonathan Fields and his Good Life Project and The Hidden Brain. So cool. In the plant world, I listen to Pollination, the Native Plant Podcast, For the Wild, the Garden Path Podcast out of Florida, the Hot House Podcast out of Texas, and Deborah Prinsing's Slow Flowers Podcast. Biodiversity is just as important to our ears as it is to our gardens. Enjoy yours and let me know, what are you listening to? I mean, in addition to cultivating place, of course. (laughs) And can I just say, as always, thank you for listening whenever and wherever and however often you do. Thank you. It makes me glad to know you're out there on this garden life journey with me. Now, back to our conversation with landscape photographer and artist, Nock Min No. Welcome. Thank you. You grew up in a small seaside town in Vietnam, and the dedication in your first book, which was entitled Bringing Nature Home, reads, Dedicated to the memory of my father, who taught me the meaning of home and shared my love of flowers. What were some of the early influences in your life, Nock, that brought you to this love of flowers and nature and gardens? When I was growing up in Vietnam, flowers were a big part of our life. And one of my earliest memories is the celebration of Tet, which is the Lunar New Year, which is the biggest holiday of the year in Vietnam. One of the most beautiful things that we do for Tet, among many others, is we would bring in these huge, massive branches of flowering quince or peach blossoms. And these branches will have these tight buds on them and then we put them all around the house. And then as the new year begins, we watch the blossoms just unfold. This ritual, it's not only beautiful, but it's meaningful. It has this symbol of hope and, you know, this blossom, these blossoming flowers will bringing us hope for the new year. And, and that's something that always stayed with me. And There were other flowers that made a big impression on me. And one of the flowers whose blooming I anticipated the most every year is what we call in Vietnamese the phoenix tail flower. Its botanical name is Delonyx regia. And it's also called the flame tree or the royal ponciana in English. These ponciana trees make great shade trees. So they're used in almost all the big avenues in most cities in Vietnam. And they are spectacular when they're in bloom and you get this explosion of vivid red, very flamboyant flowers that cover the trees from May to July, which also happens to coincide with our summer vacation. I was always really happy to see the first blooms on the ponciana trees because it meant that the school year was coming to an end. I just remember 
my greatest joy was to walk under an avenue of red blossoms as I left the school gate on the last day of school. <laughs> and when I was 10, I, I, there was a particularly flower that made a profound impression on me. It was the night blooming series. And as you know, this flower only blooms at night and by dawn is already wilting. And my great aunt had one of these planted in our garden. And when it bloomed, I was allowed to stay up late one night to watch it unfold. And it was a very, very special experience because the flower itself was incredibly beautiful. It's this white with these spidery petals. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And But just to be able to stay up late, just to catch a glimpse of this flower was a profound experience for me. I, it was so magical and the sense of occasion and staying up late with all the adults. I felt like I was being given a glimpse of something much bigger and more mysterious than anything I'd ever known until then in my childish imagination. Yeah. So basically those, those experiences sort of informed me. And this really illustrates something that I have heard you say before, which is that flowers mark the moments of our lives that could seem, you know, sort of trite. But when we put our actual memories out there and we see the flowers that, that embody them, it is anything but. Right. What brought you to the United States ultimately? We were refugees at the end of the war. <laughs> and you went on to study landscape design at Columbia University in New York City. You're, you're sometimes called a lifestyle photographer. Give us a, a little overview of how old you were when you came to the United States and what got you to that next level of the work you've chosen. I was 12 when I came. I was very, very lucky and I was given a lot of opportunities to do a lot of different things and one of which was to work on a feature film as a preparation for this, along with the director and the cinematographer, we looked at a lot of photography books, mostly black and white, and a lot of early black and white photography. And I absolutely fell in love with it Mm -hmm. and thought, oh, um, I'd love to learn how to be a photographer. And I got the still photographer on the set to teach me how to print. And I set up a dark room in my bathroom. I was living in New York City and I had a bathtub in my kitchen. It had a lid that folded over so during the day I could use it as like a kitchen counter and when I need to take a bath I just flip the lid over and use it as a bath. And so on top of this bathtub I set up my dark room as I learned how to take pictures and print them and and so I became a photographer. I I ended up working a lot for magazines and shooting homes and interiors and travel and this title of lifestyle photographer Leading up to the publication of your first book, Bringing Nature Home, that was published in 2012, there is clearly a whole life of 
of motivation and experiences that lead you to writing it for those readers who might not have yet seen it is it is a an exploration of you photographing beautiful naturalistic floral designs and displays in really opulent interiors and you partner with one single floral designer in the book. What was the motivation for that book, which is equally beautiful and evocative and about design, but it, it again is not just a coffee table book? As a photographer, I, I, like you said, I photographed a lot of homes and interiors. And one of the things that happens on these shoots is a lot of flowers would be brought in. So each time I photographed a room, there would be tons and tons of flowers. And But most of the time they were used as decoration, as a pop of color, or just the same way that people would use other objects to decorate a room. And for me, I've always thought that flowers were so much more than that. And, and it, it would sometimes frustrate me that people didn't see the all the layers of meaning in flowers. I wanted to bring out those many layers of meanings of flowers. I wanted to reconnect flowers to nature, to the seasons and all the reasons that make them so endlessly fascinating for me. I wanted to look at the complex history behind the simple act of bringing flowers into one's home. How did you choose to partner with Nicolette Owen of Brooklyn's Little Flower Shop in that project? I came across Nicolette's work. It embodied what I felt was the way I looked at flowers. I, I felt like she looked at them the same way and that she saw them as flowers, as these beautiful living things and um, not just mere objects. In the introduction of your newest book, In Bloom, you trace the cultural history of really an adoration and a reverence for, as well as the study of flowers through time. As you approach the incredible diversity of subjects you chose to highlight in this book, these include artists, landscape designers, ceramicists, wallpaper designers. The, the book is, is a large format book. It has a, just a beautiful photograph on the front. There is this very rich and informative introduction written by you, and then there follow 11 portraits. So in my introduction, I said there are 12 portraits because throughout this book, there is the narrative of a portrait of you, Nock, the writer, that is included. These 11 artists are each given one page of text in which you knock, describe their history, their motivation, their creative work. And then this page of text is accompanied by anywhere from 10 to 20 full page photographs of aspects of their work. One of these photographs includes a portrait of them, the artist. It is simple and it is uncluttered in that there aren't a lot of collages. There are no captions. The text for each profile seems to stand on its own so that then as you look through the pictures, if you have read the text, there is a very clear narrative of the way their work unfolds, the way their process is handled. How did you choose these artists and what was your inner compass that helped to choose them? So um, when I started thinking about the second book, I wanted to continue that exploration of the human-plant relationship and examine specifically the place that flowers take up in our cultural history. Flowers 
have inspired some of the greatest art in history, but they've also been woven into the fabric of our everyday life. So I wanted to include artists that would take you through all these different places. There are so many artists out there who work with flowers and do amazing things. Of course, I can't include everybody. And I wanted to give each person enough room to have their work well represented. I wanted to have that wide range of work that would reflect the rich history of flower-inspired art. But at the same time, I chose people whose work I love and to which I feel a personal connection. I read a review which discouraged people from reading the text and to just enjoy the pictures. And I will state for the record that that is a great disservice to both the book and to any reader if a reader comes to it and they are at all challenged by the depth of research and the richness of history included. I say, get a cup of tea and take your time and read this book and look up the people whose names you don't know and follow this history. It will expand you as a as a reader and a thinker and a lover of flowers and landscapes. In reading every single one of these profiles, it is clear you, Nock, are very well read to start with, but also did a great deal of research. Talk about that process for me. Yes, I, I, I did do a lot of research. It didn't feel like research because it is the things that I read most yeah. of the time. I I just have this obsession with flowers. And, and like I said, I, I find it extremely fascinating that flowers have sparked the imagination of so many people throughout history, and it continues to do so. You quote a good many poets, both modern and ancient. You quote ancient scriptural and spiritual text. You cite references to ancient history in China, in Japan, in Rome and Greece, and then the sort of history of the way people interact and have relationships with flowers in a whole variety of cultures and across this great span of time. When you are interested in something, you kind of see it everywhere. Yeah. It kind of pops up everywhere. What were your greatest joys or surprises in the process of finding and choosing and visiting and interviewing these artists? So the, the process of doing this book was just an immense joy for me. It was, I started with Claire Bassler, who is this incredible painter who likes to paint directly onto walls and she lives in this chateau in France and whose rooms she just decorates with the most beautiful um, paintings of different flowers. It's extraordinary and, and it's like stepping into this world where there are just layers upon layers of nature and she, she has flowers, real flowers, in front of her painted flowers. And, and she's this wonderful, wonderful um, artist who's so open and generous. And I spent um, three, four days with her, and we talked and we laughed. And it, it was an amazing start to the project. And from there on, it just every person that I talked to was the same and in different ways. Everyone was incredibly generous and everyone taught me something about flowers. Everyone taught me um, something different, something new. 
and it just deepened my appreciation of flowers and, and in a way that I didn't think would be possible. Yeah. And you traveled far and wide for this project. So the very first profile is the floral designer, uh, Sarah, in New York City. And then the second profile is on Livia in California, who creates these incredibly intricate and fascinating paper flowers. Miranda Brooks is back in on the Northeast Coast. You are in Morocco. You are in London. You're in France several times. You're in Italy. You're back in Connecticut. You, you clearly got a wide diversity of global perspective. What are there areas you felt that you would like to add more to or were you, yeah, were you happy with the final result in this global representation? I, I am pretty happy with the result. Of course, you know, once you um, do something, you always, when you finish something, you always think, or in my case, I always think, oh, I could have done it better. I could, there are a million other things that, you know, I could have done. So I think what I wanted to do, like I said before, was to have a range of work from different places, like, as I said in, 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 the, set out in the introduction, I mean, the the influence and the inspiration that flowers um, have exerted on different cultures and different places and times. So I wanted to have that kind of range. Um, the only place I felt was missing and perhaps maybe... One day I'll do a whole book on that. It's it's in Asia and and the culture of flower in Asia. And I feel like maybe that is something sort of separate. Um, well, even I'll though look it's forward to that book. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Are you a gardener, Nock? Um, I have a very small garden. In fact, it's not my garden. I live in a building with there are four apartments, and we have a garden in front of the building which I um, work on, and I'm the person who's responsible for the garden. So I sometimes think of it as my garden, but it's actually the whole, it belongs to everyone in the building. And it actually happens to be on a corner. So um, I live in Brooklyn, and one of the nicest things, even though it's not a private garden, like I said, it's in the front of the building, um, I get a lot of people who will just stop by when they see me working in the garden and they will come and ask me questions about the garden, about the flowers that I like. Or, and it, it's incredible. It, it's a real um, point of connection for people in the neighborhood. Which is always a wonderful thing about a, a front yard garden. Yeah. What, what flowers and plants do you have in that garden? Well, it's very, very small. Um, but it's surprising how many flowers I can pack in it. Um, <laughs> it, it, it. In the spring, I have all the bulbs. I have tulips. I have muscari. I have um, daffodils. I have irises. I have alliums, um, peonies, a couple of roses, even though I don't have a lot of sun. I have mock orange. Mm. Um, <laughs> I try to pack and camellias. 
in in the summer I have astilbes, I have hydrangea, I have um, a few other irises, and then now in the fall I have anemones and chrysanthemums. Well, your garden is both colorful and it smells delicious. I can tell from yes. here. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> scent, uh, scent is one thing that I highly value in flowers. I have a Daphne that mm. is also very, very um, fragrant. Yes, mock orange. It's amazing. Yeah. I love the scent of Philadelphia. Before we end our interview with the my final request, is there anything you would like to share with listeners about your newest book in bloom or about this whole process and the importance of it in your life? Wow. Well, I, I hope that people, um, that people get what I'm trying to put forward. Um, in doing this book, I, like you said, there were no captions and I, I looked at each, um, subject as a story that I wanted to tell. And the way that I set up the book is to, take you um, to a place and give you an introduction with a text. And then hopefully with your imagination, I don't, I, the reason why I didn't want to put in captions is that I just, I just want to set up the scene and take you to this place and let you wander through it and get what you get out of it. Um, maybe a lot more than what I put in, hopefully. So I, I wanted to have people to have that interaction with the stories. Um, mm. And I think everyone brings something to the story <laughs> from their own experience, from their own appreciation of flowers, and hopefully come out of it with um, even a deeper appreciation. Yes. I, I definitely got what you were doing, and it worked for me. The, oh, the, the Each of the profiles was very much uh, an entry, a gateway in the photographs that follow were, were very immersive. And I'm sure I will get something more out of them every time I look at them. Nyok Minno, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an honor to have you. It's been a great pleasure. You've been listening to the fourth and final episode in our four-part series on botanical artistry featuring Anne Wood and Nock Min No. Anne Wood of Woodlucker Studios in Minneapolis, St. Paul is an artist focusing on three-dimensional paper art. Vietnamese-born, New York-based landscape photographer and writer Nock Min No is the author of In Bloom, Creating and Living with Flowers. In the introduction to that book, Nock writes, quote, like a Robert Frost poem that begins in delight and ends in wisdom, flowers seduce us with their piercing beauty, but they also have much to teach us about the impermanent nature of life. Nock reminds us, as do all the artists in the Cultivating Place series on botanical artistry, that in our, quote, craving to connect with nature, the beauty of the botanical realm continues to be the perfect foil for the magic of the human imagination. Join us again next week as the conversations continue when we're joined by Leah Penniman, founder of Soul Fire Farm in Petersburg, New York. She'll be speaking with us about her work toward ending racism and injustice in our food system and about her new book, Farming While Black. 
There are so many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To make your tax-deductible listener contribution, please click the support button in the upper right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you in advance for your help making these valuable conversations grow. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so you never miss a conversation, as well as to read more about and see many photos from Anne Wood and Nock Min No's creative lives, head over to cultivatingplace.com and follow the subscribe links. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.